think you've all made a good choice. might not feel like it sometimes. Especially these early days on retreat can can sometimes feel quite overwhelming. Our dear friend Ajahn Sujito once said, yeah, in these first few days you're eyeball to eyeball with your karma. All the patterns that have been created. Seems so much, so real, so much like me. Tend to, to arise. We can uh, feel quite hemmed in. But rather than just uh, blindly, compulsively following them, in our lives, well, there's something better. A sense of a potentiality which the Buddha called the first great leader, the indriya, the spiritual faculty that carries us to awakening is that trust, that faith, if you will. Faith that we're not eternally our worry, not eternally our fear, not eternally our envy or resentment or whatever. We might not feel like we have faith, but we all have quite a bit might not be faith in this doctrine or that doctrine, that, that faith, that rigid attachment to some sort of ideology or framework or belief system can be powerful, but it can also take us, as we see in ourselves and in the world, to some very extreme positions. But if we didn't have faith or confidence or some trust that there was a possibility of, a, of growing through, maturing beyond, transforming through our stuff, if we didn't have, tr- on some level, trust in awakening, if there's a possibility of waking up, we wouldn't be here. And we've come into a limitation, yes. But a temple, which came from the old word template, the sacred boundary, it's a 
supposedly maybe in olden days when one would uh, go to a sacred boundary, enter the temple. Maybe then with all sorts of enthusiasm, I'm on the sacred ground. I'm going to stay here, get awakened. Enthusiasm in the morning, but then when the heat of the midday, maybe then we get discouraged by the afternoon. Seems endless. But if we stay within the boundary, we have the opportunity to notice these different moods shift and change. A voluntary conscious committing oneself to a sacred boundary, helping us get things in perspective. The old original meaning of religion was the same. Religere means to bind. Yoga, same meaning. Yoga means to yoke. You consciously commit oneself or connect to a a limitation. (coughs) But for the sake of bringing what was split back together, for the sake of liberating ourselves from constriction, confusion, And so I congratulate everyone for the good choice to come and consciously move into a, a, liber- into a, a, a limitation, a silence, so there's not just chattering. But within that limitation, seeing all the impulses maybe to speak, or do something, we have the opportunity within that religere, that conscious working with a form, we have the chance to get it in perspective, the different tendencies, the stuff, the patterns. It's a real privilege to listen in in our small groups at all your various insights through being with the silence, the sitting, the walking, the returning to the simple embodied experience. Someone was uh, sharing about a certain pattern that usually activates them so much. And caught in the doubt and the this or that or this or that, which so usually seems like me usually entangles us up. But within the collective power of our collective practice, in this space which is encouraging us not to just blindly follow conditions, but to make the primary refuge, abiding place, a place of listening, patience, kindness, this person uh, shared uh, just recognizing in a moment, well, that's, that's you again, that, that pattern. 
became a pattern, a feeling tone, a stream that was just what it was. It wasn't destroyed. We didn't pass out spiritual AK-47s. Let's, we'll take care of them. <laughs> let's see that if I'm, let's get close to me. But just the noticing that there was a relief That's why that story that Tanisha shared about our master, Ajahn Chai, is so useful when he pointed to the boulders, are they heavy? He asked his disciples, and you know, finally they're like, oh, he's asked us a question we can get right. <laughs> yeah, they're heavy. <laughs> really heavy. <laughs> he loved to do that, and then he would kind of grunt. <laughs> they're not heavy unless you try to lift. When we, that's what we do, we're wrestling, struggling, it shouldn't be, should it be this way, this way? And yet, when one lets something that might seem huge, big, this, that, lets it be, and there's that, for even a moment of relinquishing, of having to clamp on it, reject it, there's a relief, a freedom that came out of a limitation. It's a paradox. That's the essential paradox of contemplate, of religion, of the yoking of yoga, which leads to freedom, of the essential using trainings and things to free oneself. The popular, used to for a long time, you know, Buddhism wouldn't fit in there. Come on, let's get down to it. What do you believe? You know, like you put it into some little thumbnail thing we grip onto. The Buddha taught about honoring, not being afraid of our suffering, our challenges. That through this alchemy of really being with, The way things are, there is an illumination that happens. But when our tendencies, deep, ancient tendencies, to run away from that which is difficult, to try to keep grasping at the pleasant, it's not easy. <coughs> and these first few days are, are, are challenging. It was 40 years ago that I went off to a monastery stayed in a Buddhist monastery for 15 years. And just as I was sitting here tonight, looking out, feeling the presence of you all, I was just wanted to encourage everyone to be patient with this practice. It's a good practice. It's a good way. The way of listening composing ourselves, kindly being patient, investigating into the nature of things, and little by little giving back what isn't really ours, letting things be what they are, part of nature. And in even little moments, starting to feel 
relief, that freedom, which is our birthright. It is our essential nature. As I was mentioning on the opening night, the Buddha said, it is always here and now. It's inviting us. Come see, come listen. Forty years ago, before I went into the monastery, I was on a big success treadmill, doing a lot of good things, not that I was doing bad things, but I was working so hard to get to success. I had this notion, you, you get there. Probably hard to imagine it, but you're looking at a five-time Mid-South wrestling champion. It's like another lifetime. But really always going to the next tournament as a national invitational champion. And from our home state, we went up to Pennsylvania where there was this tournament. Used to do lots of 500 push-ups, press-ups a day, running, wonderful working. But this noticing, this sense of to get to success. And even after years of, of, of working, when I finally made it and had my hand lifted up when I had won not only the Mid-South Championship, but this National Invitational Championship, It was a, a thrill. But how long does your arm stay up? Mom got a picture. <laughs> Opened the scrapbooks. Okay, there I am. But even minutes, not long after, when the different champions were, had our picture taken, I was already starting to get anxious. I was looking, who's coming back next year? Who might I have to fight to defend my title, my championship? Same in academics. I'd ended up on this scholarship in this wonderful university in this country, Oxford. And though on a certain level I had some success, you know, in big terms, they're not that big, but some, some success, my sports and academics, I felt so exhausted. I somehow sensed this, this ever-receding, like a mirage, this, this goal of happiness and success. When I, when I get there, that it, it kept receding. I'm so grateful that I had the inkling that, hey, I'm, I'm looking too far away. I started to being called from within. I used to go like sitting in 
churches when no one was there. These lovely, this land, I love this land. The land in this country has a resonance that is easier than inter samadhi here, just my opinion. But it is, it is, uh, there's a vibrant quality in the land, it's still alive. That uh, you can walk on the land, you can feel connected to the land, there's ancient sacred sites on the land. And I, I was drawn to sit in some of these. I couldn't handle the sermons. Of course, I'm giving one now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but just the, 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 the centuries of reverence, prayer, just used to listen. And I realized I'd been overlooking this inner world. And I'm so grateful that I just happened to hear about a master in Thailand and went off and learned from someone that didn't have uh, lots of book learning. Which is the wisest uh, person I ever met. Learn from nature. <clears throat> Learn from the forest, from the animals, and from the heart. So compulsively moving, inclining to the future, that's there where I was introduced to just what we're doing. Learning to be here. For a time to subdue, to withdraw, is a very important word, withdraw. It's not reject, it's not crush. We're just withdrawing, being a little more equanimous from all our, the currents of the Longing and the distress with regard to the world, that's the phrase the Buddha gave, which is our attitude. So, so we notice the, the wanting, the not wanting. We, we subdue it, we, we just let it be, don't get so involved. And start honoring the sacredness of this. Before I was so dazzled by the, the idea of what can come in the future. But in a sense I was uh, not honoring the sacred power of right here, this body, this moment, this breath. This practice, uh, being with the breathing, as Tanisha mentioned, was a turning point in the Buddha's own life. She probably know he was born up in a like royal family, brought up, brought up in a royal family. Father was some sort of king or chief.
and he had every luxury. But sometime when he was around 29, he later shared with his disciples that he, he started surrounded by all the beauty, best food, most refined. sense pleasures, beautiful beings around him. But at some point, the, the reality of impermanence hit him. It somehow penetrated deeply when he was 29. What's called a heavenly messenger has penetrated. He, he encountered, he reacted to old age and sickness and death he saw himself uh, recoil when he, he was young, when he encountered uh, someone old, creaking along, wrinkled, groaning, frail. When he saw himself uh, recoil, he said, what? This doesn't befit me because I'm, I'm subject to that. He said the, the vanity of youth left him. But when, when he similarly reacting to, to sickness, I don't want to see that. He thought, what am I reacting to? Am I reacting to something that's part of the nature of this? I'm not free from sickness. He said in that moment, the vanity of health left him. Similar with with, with death. He didn't want to see it. And saw that moving away and then contemplated, what is that? What am I repelled by? Isn't that what this is also subject to? He said, the vanity of life, this assumption, this claiming of, of his youth, that set him on that quest, wondering what, what is truly peaceful? Is there something that doesn't die? Is there something truly trustworthy? He went through all these. He left the palace, went and studied with yogis, went to very refined states that I don't really understand went to from yogis learned how to go into disembodied states where he didn't feel the body at all where he was going into a really fine he learned from uh, Alaric Kalama this great yogi of the time how to go into a realm of nothingness so he would totally be disembodied very subtle, peaceful state. But he came back down. The teacher even said, could see this guy's talented, even offered him to, you can lead the order with me. The Buddha was respectful. Well, he was a seeker then, what's called the Bodhisattva, but he respectfully declined. He realized he hadn't found what he wanted. Then he went to another yogi who taught him an even subtler state called neither the realm of perception, realm of neither perception nor non-perception. 
These are like Olympic. The Olympics are happening now. These are like Olympic meditations. Ajahn Chah didn't teach us that. He didn't feel it was really liberating. He would go into this state but come back down and the patterns would still be there. Old age sickness and death. Still fear. Then he thought, well, maybe I'm coming down because of the attachment to the body. And so he went through a period of torturing himself. I have to maybe deserve freedom. Still there's this notion that maybe deathlessness is somewhere off somewhere else, up there. So he would starve himself to ascetic practices. Reduce the food, reduce the food, reduce the food. And he got so weak, he realized that when he would try to pee, he would be so weak he'd fall over on his face. When he scratched his stomach, he could feel it the inner part of the backbone. When he rubbed his skin, the hair came out. He knew, I am making a lot of effort. But he was wound up. There wasn't ease. And so he just asked the question, might there be another way? Just ask the question. Might there be another way? And a memory arose. When he was a child, in his father's kingdom on a festival day, perhaps some sort of harvest festival or something, or plowing festival. I guess there was talks and maybe, you know, food and maybe music. There was activity. And in the memory he remembered, and there's this word withdrawal. The Pali word is viveka, he withdrew. He didn't throw rocks and say, oh, didn't judge it. But he realized he didn't, he didn't want the party. He withdrew to the side and he sat under a rose apple tree, a child, young. And he remembered that with the curiosity of a child, the innocence of a child, he just received the experience of his body breathing. And he remembered going into a state of unification where the mind received the body, body received by the mind, body-mind connected. He remembered the brightness. The, uni- the suffusive unification. And he had the thought, Why am I afraid of that? That's not a pleasure that hurts anybody. That's something skillful. It's something that's welling up from within. 
not something coming from exploiting anybody else. Yes, if I attach to it, if I want to feel that way all the time, there'll, there'll be distress, but I can see that. He realized, ah, oh, that is wholesome, and he had the insight, ah, oh, this is the way. He knew, he had the insight. But he knew he was so weak from the starvation that he couldn't really practice unless he ate something. And just at that uh, moment, by the wonderful, mysterious synchronicity of the universe, there was a a young maiden who wanted to make an offering, but she didn't know who to make an offering to, and she saw this very thin, gaunt, but quite radiant in his own way, ascetic. She had made some milk rice, she went off, went up to him and made an offering. And he had already decided, I, I will accept, I need to eat. So that food appeared and he accepted it from a young maiden. Named Sujata. Was that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sujata. His colleagues in ascetic practice who really looked up to the super-duper-duper <coughs> king of ascetics, he could starve himself better, deprive himself more, take more discomfort. When they saw him accepting milk rice from a young maiden, they just like, he has really lost it. <laughs> He's definitely thrown in the towel, going down the slope of luxury, self-indulgence. They abandoned him. But he didn't worry. He trusted. And Tanisha has helped me realize the symbolic significance of that turning point, of realizing that this sacred ground is not often some disembodied place way up high, away from the world. That in, in, in accepting from the young maiden is that feminine receptivity, form, food, Mother Earth. That this, this pathway was not about getting out of anything, it was about comprehending, metabolizing, understanding illuminating, being right here with this body, with its aging and sickness and death. The Buddha refreshed himself, practiced the steadying, discovered this blameless, pleasing abiding that doesn't harm anyone. And over all these 40 years, just very patiently, rather than having to have great breakthroughs in samadhi, just little by little learning how in moments to let go of having to get somewhere else, having to get rid of, 
in moments, honoring what is being put into our bowl, into this moment. We're subduing, having to get something, get rid of something, just allowing our awareness with the trust of that child to just honor what is here, breathe into what is here, receive the blessing of what is here, relax into what is here. Discovering an unexpected treasure. Using these pointers like thoughts that just remind us, rather than getting lost, what's called the directed thought of vitaka, a thought like here now, or breathing in and out. Bu, to, letting that short thought just remind us, stay right here, be awake. Letting that inner sound bless the sensations in the body. So we direct the attention to the body. And then that open palm, that, that receiving, receiving of the sensations. The Buddha also, not only the Directing a thought and receiving, he also taught a third tip or kind of factor that helps us enter this state of unification. He called it pitti. It's sometimes translated as rapture. That's a bit of a strong word. Makes us think we have to, you know, break out in tears of bliss. But the seed of it is, is to savor. When we're under the sway of longing and aversion to the world, we're always wrestling, struggling. When we just bring our attention to the moment, receive it, and then with this third one, savor it, it means allow the attention to taste and practice being content with practice a quiet enjoyment of the moment just as it is. It's creating a container so that the energy can well up. When we too quickly, through our perception, judge it, oh, it shouldn't be this way, then we're already moving ahead. When we're breathing in and out and we come to, for example, many of us bring accumulated exhaustion with us. So as we breathe in and out and open up to the body, sometimes we think, oh my goodness, what a painful place. Then there's a real temptation to just go upstairs into thinking, fantasy, and not have to feel the body. But to encourage ourselves to be patient with those sensations, breathe into those sensations, practice rather than judging them, just sampling, savoring, 
tasting them and practicing this next factor which means relaxing with it then that connection of the listening, the knowing with those sensations an alchemy happens something gets transformed by staying right there practice is a healing practice. Even though I've been so active and so athletic, soon in my monastic life I I started off carrying some of my obsessive accomplishment drive to try to do the toughest practices, this and that, and ended up getting sick and also almost dying of typhoid fever in Thailand. Then I spent many, many years sick, um, getting over the damage, intestinal damage from that high fever that ulcerates all of your insides. So I had to spend many years in uh, doing lying down meditation. Three years almost, that's what I had to do almost completely. I could uh, spend very little time standing up. And so many times I noticed the magic, the alchemy of awareness. It is one connects to the body, breathing in and out. Maybe perhaps having a long, some sort of breath to help us find the body. Then letting the attention just steady itself somewhere what the Buddha called the short breath, letting our attention just be with something. If I was lying down, just be with the sensations, subtle sensations at the nostril. Allow that we can know that we're connected to something that's a part of the sacred whole. But this is an aspect of this magical universe, just this sensation. It's for a time letting go of the worry of everything else and just being with that. In and out. Boop. Toe. But then as this next stage in practice the Buddha encouraged us as uh, has been mentioned in the talks to learn to train ourselves to be aware of the whole body. To widen the lens of awareness from time to time. And as I did that and noticed, like, in my, I had a lot of internal inflammation, bleeding, exhaustion. I would widen the field, just noticing those sensations, and I could go into, oh, it shouldn't be, why is it still there? But just to hear that, breathe through those thoughts, let them be, withdraw from getting so entangled in them, and just be with the inflammation, the heaviness, the blocked energy. 
And just to breathe in and out and be very still. Breathe in and out as one was noticing a certain play, place of discomfort. And on the out-breath, relaxing, softening, widening the attention. And just noticing how just that. The unifying principle is that when awareness widens, then all the different elements have a chance to balance and they can become unified. I wasn't totally healed, but I was able to see this magical refreshing that allowed me to make it through another day. It led to what the Buddha called ekagata, this unification. Eka means one. And when the mind touches the body and opens, it comes together. It's a little like what happens when Tanisha and I in our hermitage in South Africa get a little exhausted and need a break from all the responsibilities. We sometimes drive down from the mountains to Durban and then north of Durban there's some beautiful beaches. And sometimes during the day there's lots of activity and parties and the beach will all get all dug up with footprints and sandcastles and uh, tracks. But in the early morning, sometimes when we like to walk, you go out, just watch the waves come in and withdraw. The waves come in and withdraw. Just noticing all the tracks, the ridges, the ditches, the creations, smooth, and even though there's billions of grains of sand, that rhythmic in and out. There's this wonderful, calm, tranquil, uniform stretch. One watches the water come in and then it sinks and it's pulled back out. That's what happens when we, when we practice kindly allowing the blessing of the breath to heal us. We receive it like that wave coming in and then on the out-breath we relax, soften. Practicing, quietly enjoying just that letting be to the next breath blesses us. And then the attention will naturally get drawn to anywhere that's still inflamed or difficult. We breathe in there, and then as we breathe out, widen the awareness so that the energy from that part can mingle with the other parts of the body. The image, the Buddha gave an image that he said helps us with this healing practice, samadhi, which is a blessing to the world, to ourselves.
in and of itself. It doesn't chew up the resources of this planet. We don't have to always go to the next thing. We can, in moments, learn to appreciate the blessing of just being, standing, breathing, listening. But also, as the retreat goes on, we'll be able to appreciate the powerful blessing of samadhi, because when our mind is composed, we're also able to see things as they are. And just as that person was sharing in the group today, when our mind is composed, we'll recognize a pattern for what it is that maybe has so many times tripped us up so that we're caught in worry and doubt. But when the mind is composed enough, it might be able just to say, oh, that's just a pattern. And it comes and goes, but it doesn't shape us. doesn't burden us. We're freed. This, leaving you with this image that the Buddha gave, this simile, he uses a simile that is uh, helpful in the practice. He said it's the bathman simile. In the old days when you wanted to get clean in a special way, people didn't necessarily just have hot water on tap. You would go to the bathman. And he would have this special <coughs> powder with crystals in it, probably fragrant crystals, powder, in a lovely brass bowl and hot water, I guess. But the Buddha describes this bath man sprinkling water into the powder and then kneading this powder and sprinkling more, sprinkling more, and the hands noticing any gritty bits, sprinkling more so that the water doesn't drip out. And there's an alchemy that takes place so that there's no place that that moisture hasn't suffused, permeated the whole ball of fragrant, cleansing substance. He said, so too, when we, when we practice, just as we are in moments, letting go patiently of wanting to be somewhere else, of longing and distress, using a thought, moderating that thought to come to the moment and receive this body. Then this rapture, this uh, quiet joy and ease will penetrate and permeate through every cell in our body, just like that ball of powder. That powder, when it dries like our body, it feels... There's a knee that seems huge and a hip that seems dead and a head that seems full of stuff. And yet the water sprinkling is these moments of mindfulness, moments of awareness, touching the parts of our being, the parts of our day that seem flaky, disconnected. The massaging is the rhythm of that in and out, just letting that simple rhythm bless us 
coming together of the body, the awareness, the in and out soothing rhythm of the breath like the sea within this bronze bowl, this golden colored container of awareness. I encourage us to stay with the practice. Let the alchemy happen. Be open to the possibility that the sacred ground is not far away. It's right here at the core of all conditions. Although we might not have felt like a very spectacular day, I encourage us to honor this auspicious, good day, a day of not harming, a day of practicing patience and returning. foundation, healing foundation of being with our embodiment, being with the magical blessing of the breath. May we allow the goodness of this day to be felt in every cell in our body. In each in-breath to Appreciate that gift in each out-breath to, as we let go and honor this ever-changing flow of life, may we share the goodness, the unseen virtues of this day with each other, with our families, with this gentle, wonderful land and all the creatures on her. With each out-breath as we relax and allow Mother Earth to hold us, may we share the goodness of our lives above, below, and all around to that which is seen and unseen. as we relax, the subtle energy of our work is shared without depleting us. 
as we relax our natural light shines. May all beings benefit from this world. May all beings find a good friend. May all beings realize peace. For listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.